0: Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. If you have your copy of God's word, I would invite you to turn to Luke chapter nine. We're gonna be today in Luke chapter nine, verses 46 to 56. First, I wanna say thank you. Thank you for praying for missions. Thank you for taking the time to pray for church planters. We feel those prayers. We know that churches are praying for the work in Honduras. And I was on the phone with one of the church planters who was prayed for uh, today, just last week. And I know that he feels those prayers as well. So thank you for your prayers, first and foremost. We have a prayer hearing answering God. He is not far off. And so thank you for praying for the work in Honduras. Please continue to do so. It is a joy to be with you. My family will be here uh, for Sunday school. I'd love for you to get to meet them. With that being said, um, we're about to read God's Word, and we confess that the Word of God is the power unto salvation. And so I would invite you to put your attention to or pay attention to the reading of the Word. This is the most important thing that we will do, because the Word of God does not return void. And so hear the Word of the Lord from Luke chapter 9. An argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. But Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child and put him by his side. And he said to them, Whoever receives this child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you, all is the one who is great. John answered, Master, We saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he does not follow with us. But Jesus said to him, Do not stop him, for the one who is not against you is for you. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem, and he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him because His face was set toward Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them, and they went on to another village. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord stands forever. Let us pray together. Heavenly Father, we come before you once again recognizing our utter dependence upon the work of the Holy Spirit to preach a better word than the one that is prepared. We thank you that your word does not return void. We ask that you would give us ears to hear and eyes to see wonderful things in your law. We pray that you would instruct us, that you would correct us, that you would grow us in holiness, that we would love the Lord Jesus Christ more after hearing your word and that we would not leave this place the same way that we entered, but that we would leave being changed through your word ...not so that we can pat ourselves on the back... ...but that your name might be magnified in our lives... ...that we might love you and love our neighbors. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We live in a day and age where the idea of greatness... ...is something that is always portrayed on the screen to us. Yesterday, if you were watching any of college football... ...after game interviews are full of players talking about themselves... And I can remember one of those post-game interviews, and it was last year, and I'm not using this example because I'm a Tennessee fan and Richard is a Georgia fan, but Georgia's quarterback, after winning the national championship, only talked about himself. All he talked about is believing in him, being good enough, I just had to do the right things, and as long as I could trust myself, I would be great. And that is not foreign to what you see in most people's lives there is this constant conversation of who is the greatest where do i fit how do i get recognition how do i bring attention to myself and this is where we find the disciples at the beginning of this chapter and it seems like they just keep going deeper well it's not the beginning of the chapter but they keep going deeper and deeper they find themselves responding to the situations around them and What we can see from these disciples is that they are a very slow bunch. They're not the smartest guys. They have just come off of the Mount of Transfiguration in chapter 9. They've seen Jesus cast out demons. They've heard Jesus call them to take up their cross. And we find find them in this section talking about who is the greatest among themselves. And it shows that even, even as we get into this, even after we have these mountaintop experiences, we are still plagued by our own sin. And it's still very present. And so I want us to see this idea of the the, the disciples being slow and, and struggling with who Jesus is under three headings this morning. The first is, who is the greatest? The second is, pharisaical holiness. And the third is, rejected and corrected rejected and corrected so the first is who is the greatest we see that in the first section in verses 46 to 48 we see these men have have in verses 28 some of these men verses 28 to 36 have have gone up and been on this mountaintop experience with christ and they have seen the glory of who jesus is And they recognize all that Jesus has come to do. And yet at the same time, they're still arguing about the detail of who amongst them is the greatest. We see it in verse 46. An argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. And it's amazing that after being those who had received so much grace, it was not them who had called themselves. It was Jesus who had called them. It was Jesus who had, had brought them to be disciples, that they're having a conversation about where they fit. And it's amazing that oftentimes we can think that experiences is what changes us. right? They have had one of the most miraculous situations happen to them in the fact that Jesus has called them, has elected them. They are following with Jesus. They are seeing him do miracle after miracle, and yet their focus is on themselves. It's not real foreign to where we find ourselves oftentimes, that we find ourselves thinking about how we fit into things, how we uh, are found to be great, or whether people take notice of us and what we are doing. And so they've seen the greatness of Jesus, but their conversation is still about the greatness of themselves. Which led J.C. Ryle to say, it's amazing that pride is much like the skin that is on our bodies. We carry it with us all the time. We cannot get away from it. We can go and we can hear the word preached and we can be changed by it, but but our pride is ever-present, that we are always being hindered by this situation where we want to think about ourselves instead of thinking about the glory of Christ. And these men would be a great example, and it's so easy to throw stones at these men and say, look, look what you've experienced, and yet you're having an argument about where you fit, but it's not foreign to us. We have this situation in our own daily lives. We do good works and we hope that people will take notice of how good our good works are. We want people to notice our abilities. We want people to take and pay attention to us and our pride is eating away at our lives. So my question for you this morning is where is pride showing itself in your life? Is it showing itself in your marriage? In the decisions you make about who is the greatest in your life? Is it In the way that you raise your kids, in the way that you discipline your kids because you don't want people to think poorly of you. So you're disciplining them so that your kids will be looked at as good kids so that you're a good parent. Or is it showing up in the way that you do school or in the way that you do work? It's all about making sure that you get recognition. Recognition. There's nothing wrong with working for the glory of God and wanting things to go well and disciplining for the glory of God. But the idea here is that oftentimes, like the disciples, what we get focused on is not the glory of our Savior, but on the glory of ourselves. And we're concerned about how we're viewed and what what we or what people think about us. And so they're arguing about their own position. And so Jesus knowing, as the text says in verse 47, but Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child and put him by his side. And so Jesus is going to give them an apt illustration to help them understand how they should look at themselves, right? He grabs this child, which most likely would have been the child just up a little bit, who he has just cast out the unclean spirit from. In verses 37 to 43, we see Jesus uh, cause a a spirit to come out of a a young child. It says in verse 39, behold, a spirit seizes him and he suddenly cries out. It convulses him so that he foams at the mouth and shatters him and will hardly leave us. And I beg your disciples to cast it out. But they could not. Jesus answered, oh, faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and bear with you? Bring your son here. While he was coming, the demon threw him to the ground and convulsed him. But Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy and gave him back to his father. So most likely in the context of what we're seeing, it's this child that Jesus grabs. And he he brings him as an example to these disciples, which is a young boy who is completely helpless, unable to do anything for himself because he's filled with an unclean spirit and he needs to be, be taken care of. And that is what Jesus has done. And so Jesus uses this child as an example to these these men. And in verse 48, he says, Whoever receives this child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you is the one who is great. And so what Jesus is saying is is showing them that the example that he wants them to understand is that to serve the least of these, then the, the people that would have been unable to help themselves is the one who is the greatest. And so Jesus is saying that service is the way up. The way down is the way up. To die to self in our pastoral prayer, Patrick thanked the Lord and prayed, saying, we thank you that you didn't count equality with God something to be grasped, but made yourself nothing for the sake of sinners. You see, what Jesus has done is become... The one who came to serve what he is showing them, what he is is saying to them is the very thing that he has done in coming. You see, he is he is saying that to 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 serve is the way up. That is is for us to get more recognition is for us to become less, is his argument. Is that as you serve the least of these, that is the one who is great among you. And it's countercultural. It's an idea that is driven by a sense of having a high view of God and a low view of self. And so they this is Jesus' rebuke to them. And so I ask us this morning, is that the heart that we have? When we talk about service, is service only defined by what kind of recognition we get? What kind of pat on the back people give to us for what we're doing? Or as Count Zinzendorf said, preach Christ, die and be forgotten. Is that our goal? To serve Christ, die and be forgotten? That we can sing, abide with me because our eyes are so set on heaven and our eyes are so captivated with our Savior that we long to be with him. Is that how we are living our Christian lives? As death to self and living for Christ. Because in essence, the last section of this, this text, and he did this in verse 23 as well, Jesus had already told them to take up their cross and follow him. And at the end, he's going to talk about service, and he's going to talk about, you cannot have divided hearts in serving me. He's going after what it means to think about his glory. And this is where, brothers and sisters, it would seem that this would have hit home. Jesus is now re- kind of rebuke them for their conversation. And then you would think that they would hear it, repent, and then move forward. But no, we see Pharisaical holiness as the second thing. So in light of this, John answers Jesus. As Jesus has has said to them that, that the one that serves this child serves me, and he who serves me is the one who serves him who sent me. And John answers, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name and we tried to stop him because he does not follow with us. But Jesus said to him, do not stop him for the one who is not against you is for you. And so we see that John, in light of what Jesus has said, said, but, but Jesus, I, I understand that. But there's this one who is out there actually casting out demons in your name. And that really concerns me because he's not doing it as one of who? One of us. He's not one of us. And I'm really thankful to Ligon Duncan for this part of this sermon. Because he said, this is a text for preachers. He said, because preachers have a tendency to be very protective about whose is, who are theirs and who are not theirs. And we can become, we, I say we, can become, as a church planter, very sensitive to the idea of, no, this is who we are and they are bad news. But Jesus is making an argument of, of saying that those who are not against us are for us. Now, we have to make a, a, a clarification here. Jesus is not pressing for progressivism. Jesus is not pressing for inclusion. Jesus is not saying, "Oh, it doesn't matter what they believe. It's okay to just kind of push forward together." No, 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 no. Because in chapter 11, he's going to say, "Those who are not for us are against us," right? So he's going to make a definition there. But there is a reality in this text for us that we should rep- we should think as preachers and as churches. That we should bless the Lord when there are other people doing good works in the name of the Lord. We should bless the Lord when there are advances for the gospel in Houston or in Spring Valley or in Tegucigalpa or in Africa or in Asia. And we should bless the Lord for that. But we oftentimes wanna say, but they're not with us. They don't carry our brand. Now, I am a church planter and pro the idea of starting a new denomination in Honduras. That's what we are doing. We are starting a a, a Presbyterian denomination for the first time in Honduras. So I'm okay with doctrinal differences. I think we should have them. Those are good things. But what Jesus is arguing for is that sometimes we can become so caught up in how truly reformed we are that we start casting out good things because we're so concerned about us and what we are. We must fight heresy, but we must fight against our tendency for self-advancement. And it's interesting that John responds this way right after having a conversation about who is the greatest getting rebuked and then he's going to to bring up this idea of but look, they're not one of us and Jesus is going to rebuke him as well. We should be churches that love good theology but we must be careful not to turn our noses up at good gospel work and bless the Lord for it and pray for it. Because we long that people would know Christ. We long that sinners would come to know Jesus. That those who are living within a mile, two miles, three miles of of these church doors would hear the good news of Jesus Christ. And that we wouldn't say, oh, but they heard it at that church. No, we should long to hear people saying, I was on this retreat with this church and the person preached Christ and for the first time ever I understood that I'm a wicked sinner who is undeserving of grace and Christ saved me. Bless the Lord for that. We should bless the Lord for that week by week and we should pray for it week by week. We should pray for it here. Because amongst a group of people this size, we would have to say, that there are unbelievers amongst us. And if you're an unbeliever and you don't know Christ, young, old, you've come for years and years, I plead with you, come to this Christ who is willing and able to Forgive you. You may say, Aaron, I'm much more like these disciples than you know. I'm constantly caught up with whether or not I'm the greatest. I'm constantly caught up with my own world, and I'm, I'm full of sin and wickedness. This Jesus came to save sinners. Come to him. Receive him. Repent and turn to Christ. That today would be the day that Christ changes your life. He is willing and able to do it. And maybe you find yourself a lot like these disciples constantly, constantly fighting for your position. Maybe you're a leader in a church. Maybe you're a leader in your family and it's constantly thinking about who you are and where you fit. Repent and look to this Christ who's trying to show these disciples who is the true greatest. And look to this Jesus. But oftentimes, even within the church, we can be like dogs who are constantly marking their territory. In Honduras, a lot of people have, we live behind gates, um, and a lot of people have protective dogs, right? And oftentimes people will bring their dogs over, and I'm not trying to use this as an, an inappropriate illustration, but oftentimes when you bring a new dog into a new territory, they walk around marking territories, right? And then if you watch the other dog, they'll follow them around marking the same territories, right? oftentimes that's what preachers are constantly doing. No, this is my territory. No, this is my territory. Nor this is my territory. While all along somebody's robbing the house. Because we're so focused on marking what's ours instead of caring about the good news of the gospel. And that Christ has come. He has died. He has risen. He sits at the right hand of the Father. And he promises to save people. That is the glory of what Christ has come to do. And that's what he's going to show us in the third point. As we turn towards the idea of rejected and corrected. It says that in verses 51 to 56 that Jesus... Drew near, it says in verse 51, when the days drew near for him to, to be taken up, he set his face to Jerusalem. Meaning that J- Jesus is, is beginning this process of making his way to the cross. His eyes are, are set on what he has come to do. And so he sends messengers to prepare the way. They, they go ahead. The, the people reject him, most likely because the Samaritans knew that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. They wanted nothing to do with these Israelites, so they didn't want to accept him. And verse 54 shows us, again, the lack of grace of the disciples. It can be real easy to just beat up on the disciples as you read chapter 9. And you read James and John. John, again, gets mentioned. Um, the sons of thunder, right? It says in verse 54, and when the disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? Oftentimes, as preacher and as a believer, we can do the same thing for people who just have questions about the gospel, or we're looking around at a world that is an unbelieving world, and we want to call down fire upon them. And yet, Jesus has set his face to Jerusalem for the for the purpose of coming to die for sinners. And so these disciples, seeing what has gone on, they have holy boldness and they're excited and they're, they, are, they don't want Jesus because this is their Savior, the one, the promised Messiah. They don't want him to be seen as, as, as unaccepted. And so they want to call down fire on these unbelievers. It reminds me of in 2 Samuel when there's multiple times when Abisai, I i said that in spanish uh and um, joab are constantly with david and people do things to david and the first thing they're ready to do is they'll say to david david let's cut their heads off right they're so ready to protect the king so we can put this in a good light and say look they're just protecting their king but jesus it says in verse 55 but he turned And he rebuked them. Why would Jesus turn and rebuke them? Because Jesus has come for a purpose. He has set his sights on Jerusalem. Jesus has come for the fact of dying for sinners. Jesus has come to go to the cross... He has come to give the good news of hope in the gospel. You see, Jesus has come and he rebukes them because he has come so that these people would not receive, if they know the Lord Jesus Christ, would not receive the fire that they deserve falling down upon them. Because what is going to come is judgment if they don't know the Lord Jesus Christ. But who is going to go and receive that judgment? Is it not Jesus himself who is going to go to the cross and receive the fire that these unbelievers deserve, that you and I deserve For our sakes, he's going to go to the cross and take the the wrath of God so that others might be received. And so Jesus, looking at these men, rebukes them because he knows what he has come to do. And what he has come to do is to die for sinners, to show them that the greatest is the one who comes to serve, not to be served. That the greatest is, is Jesus Christ. The example is the one who didn't count equality with God something to be grasped. But he came to serve to die. He who had equality with God, but made himself nothing. Why? So that we could be saved. So that we could be given eternal life. So that we could be named and adopted and received by him, through him, and for his glory. You see, Jesus has come for that very purpose. He's come that we would know Him and that's what we long that people would know day in and day out. So my question for us in closing would be, is that what people are hearing from us on a daily basis? That they hear from us the good news of the Gospel, the good news of the truth of the Lord Jesus Christ, that our friends at school, that our friends at work, that our neighbors they hear a hopeful people. Not because we're hopeful of what's going on in America, but because we're hopeful because Jesus came, died, rose, and sits on the throne. And our hope is in heaven. That we are pilgrims headed to a better country. That we can sing again, Abide with me, fast falls the eventide," And it, with my closing eyes, I'm looking towards heaven. That that is our hope. That that's what we find comfort in. Brethren, is that what people are receiving from us? A joy-filled Christianity that is overwhelmed with who this Jesus is. That we have come to know the greatest. The one who is the God-man. Who made himself nothing. So this simple kid from Tegucigalpa, Honduras, could say, I'm a blood-bought son of God. And if that's you this morning, that you're a blood-bought son or daughter of the King, who's the greatest? It's our Savior. Look to him and find hope. Let us pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We're thankful that it is sharper than any double-edged sword. We're thankful that it cuts us to the quick. Lord, we pray that as we look to Christ that we would be changed. O oh Lord rebuke us of our tendency to find hope in ourselves. Rebuke us of our tendency to want to be the greatest. Rebuke us of our tendency of wanting to mark the areas that are our areas of expertise. Help us to rejoice in the advance of the gospel. We pray O oh Lord that there would be advance in your kingdom today in the hearts of people throughout the city of Houston. We pray That as men rise to preach the gospel, we pray that sinners would be brought home. That this day, we would look back and say, what happened in Houston on the second week of November? There's been a grand change. And that all we can tack it to is that sinners were brought to saving faith in Christ. And that neighborhoods and cities are changed through the work of the Holy Spirit in the lives of believers. Lift high your name, O Lord, amongst us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.